a couple weeks ago, or last week, we began a new series called Life After Easter. And we're, it's a kind of a mini-series that we're looking at, is we're answering the question, what happened after Jesus rose from the dead? What happened to those first disciples? What was this thing that now we call Christianity? How did it go from this uh, group, a relatively group, small group of followers and believers in Jesus in the numbers of, you know, of several hundred to now the largest, most uh, influential religious movement in the history of humanity. What happened? And so we're looking at life after Easter. What were the first things that, that happened and how did it get to where we are to this day? And, and last week we looked at the idea that the first thing that we saw was Jesus taught his disciples, he said, you will be my witnesses. And that wasn't just being uh, people who stood on the corner and told everyone, you know, handing out something and telling people about Jesus, although that at times is okay if that's your heart and your gifting. But really we're witnesses to a couple things. One thing we're witness to it's a fact that Jesus Christ has changed our lives and transforms us, makes us into new people, and there's a future kingdom. We're redeemed and restored. We're forgiven for our sins, and there's a future hope that we have. We're witnesses to that truth, but we're also witnesses to the current kingdom of God that our lives should declare that Jesus is Lord. So the way we live puts that on display, and the first disciples were doing that. Now, as I was looking at where we're going today, I started thinking, what was it, how did the early disciples take all of this that they knew, and what was it like for them to begin living it out? And I was thinking of a story. When I was in high school and college, I was um, an avid snow skier, I really big into skiing. Um, I started off by competitive, I was racing, and that wasn't exciting enough for me, so I got into the backcountry skiing, you know, jumping off a cliff, skiing in deep snow, hiking to backcountry, all that kind of stuff. And every year in the fall, there was this movie that came out by Warren Miller. Any of you who know, yeah, Warren Miller's been around for like 105 years. So um, Southern California, and every year he came out with a new movie. In fact, at the La Paloma, every year there's a, a new Warren Miller movie shown. So it's kind of, but my friend and I would go to it, and, and it would get us pumped up and ready for the ski season. In fact, I went over to my friend's house one day. He was, we had a bunch of them on, at the time, VHS um, as well. <laughs> And uh, I'll tell you guys, some of you, what VHS are later. But so I went to his house, and he was watching one of them, and he had his ski poles on his couch, and he was, you know, he was getting pumped up. So we would always watch these movies, kind of get excited for the season. But back in the day, it, the titles of the movies show you what was popular, and that's when we called extreme skiing got popular, all that backcountry stuff. The movies were like steeper and deeper. So it's the steeper mountains, the deeper snow, all that stuff. But one of the things that I often... Inevitably, in the movies, there would be someone skiing backcountry, and they'd get caught in an avalanche at some point. And through that, they would say, well, here's the things you need. You need to have a transponder so when you get buried, they can find you more quickly. Sounds good, right? Um, and then they would tell you kind of the different techniques to try to stay on top of the avalanche, or if you get buried, how you can create a little pocket of air and prolong your time there. Sounds great, doesn't it? For some of you, it's just like, that sounds fantastic. So... But we'd watch that, and my buddy and I would talk about it, because we did a lot of backcountry skiing. And I've never been caught in a giant avalanche where I needed a beeper or anything to be found. But inevitably, when you're skiing backcountry, there were times when you make a turn on the face of a mountain, and the whole mountain starts to move forward with you. And you realize in that moment, oh, this is what being in an avalanche looks like. And very quickly, you, you're, my mind went to Warren Miller... <laughs> And what I learned from watching and hearing people talk about avalanche of some of the techniques that you would do to try to stay on top of the snow and keep yourself alive. And like I said, I, I always lived through them. So that's to, to spoil the end of the story. But um, 
But I, I, those moments when knowing about what to do and then having to do it is this point in time when the knowledge goes from just, okay, that sounds good, to it becomes real. Uh, biblically speaking, there's this Greek word called epigenosis, and, and it's, it essentially means knowledge, kind of, you could interpret it knowledge on top of something, or complete knowledge. And this is a biblical word that's used often in scripture talking about our knowledge of God. And it means this knowledge that it's not just here, but it's now on top of something. There's life experience. It's now being played out and lived out. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1 verse 9, Paul's writing is this, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to, uh, heard of the conversion and this growth of the church in Colossae. We've not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge, the epigenosis, of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that when you, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, the epigenosis of God, this idea that it's no longer just something we talk about, but it is played out in our lives. It's no longer this theory of what to happen when the avalanche occurs, but now I see, oh, this is how it actually works. And as I look at the early church and what we're studying, this life after Easter, what I want to really encourage us as a family is how do we take all of this information and how do we make it real? How does it change from just showing up on Sundays, hearing a sermon, and become real in our lives? And, and when I look at the first disciples, I think, what would that have been like now? Jesus rose from the dead, and now you start recalling all of his teachings. That's why the title of the sermon today is, Now We Are Listening. Don't you think when he rose from the dead, they thought, okay, let's review some of the things you were teaching us, <laughs> because now I'm listening. Now all this knowledge is starting to be taken and we want this complete knowledge because we want to put this into action and we have to it, see how it plays out. So that's the goal of studying life after Easter. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll be getting there in a moment and as you find your way, flip there. It's kind of two-thirds of the way through your Bible or if you're using a digital Bible, it's called Acts. Find your, poke your way there and uh, we will be there in a moment. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for this morning. I thank you for the reminder of your truth, and I pray that today, Lord, that we would be people who take this knowledge and let it become real in our lives. And there's moments when it's real, and there's moments when maybe it just seems like information. God, we ask that you change us, that you transform us and make this into truth that changes things, because we believe life is found in you. So we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Acts chapter 2. We're going to start off here, and I want to admit, as we read uh, the first several verses of this chapter, if you are new to Scripture, and if, the, if you haven't read these stories before, this is one of the stories that you might read and say, oh yeah, this is why I think Christians are a little weird. Uh, because some of the stories in the Bible you just read and you go, that doesn't make any sense. So we're going to try to make it make a little bit of sense for us today. So Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, When the day of Pentecost had come, uh, Pentecost was a, a Jewish festival. Uh, we'll talk about it in a moment. It's also called Shavuot, which means weeks in Hebrew. Um, Pentecost in Greek means 50. It was 50 days after Passover. It was a festival where they celebrate the harvest. So we'll look at that in a moment. So when the Feast of Pentecost had come, the disciples were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of the disciples. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when they, this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing the disciples speak in his own language. Why, uh, they were amazed and astonished and said, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And he goes on to name a bunch of the places where they came from. Jumping down to verse uh, 11, it says, We each hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? We'll continue the story in a moment, but here, let me set the the scene for what's going on. Because like they ask, many of you ask, what does this mean? I mean, here's a bunch of disciples hanging out. There's this loud sound, maybe some wind that rushes through, and there's tongues of fire, and now they're speaking different languages. This, this is like, you know, sci-fi to the max, right? You just look at this like, no one makes this stuff up. What is going on? So let me just give you some background. Again, Pentecost is uh, this Jewish festival, so it's one of the three pilgrimage festivals where the Jewish people were encouraged to come to Jerusalem to celebrate. And it was known as uh, to celebrate the first harvest, the first wheat harvest, uh, roughly happened between May and June every year. So they would come and celebrate that. And the feast harvest would acknowledge, hey, we believe that God is the one who provides our harvest, so we come to give thanks. And this would be in the face of the Greco-Roman culture or the Egyptian culture or some of the regions that were mentioned here that would give their allegiance and say, oh, thank you to the harvest for the god of rain or the gods of storms or the, the goddess of fertility or wherever it might be. This was, we come every year to Jerusalem and say, we acknowledge that the creator God, in this case, they, it went by the name Yahweh, is the giver of all things and the harvest. So they would come to celebrate that God is God over all. And that's what they did. Now, we also know to this day, modern day, um, it celebrates that, but also in the Jewish faith, they celebrate, it's to remember the giving of the law. When uh, God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was also to commemorate that, which they believe maybe happened about 50 days after the, the original Passover being led out of Egypt. And we don't know exact, that's not written in the Bible, that that's what you use Pentecost for or Shavuot, but that's the tradition. We believe it existed. We don't know how long, but perhaps in the time of Christ as well. So, but for sure, it's a harvest festival, and if it's a giving of the law, they both kind of have the same thing. It's we have a creator God who is, who is the giver of these things to us. Now, we read in the story that there's a rushing wind. In scripture, wind is the same root word for spirit, and so often the spirit of God is associated with wind, and you see this um, whether there was actually a mighty rushing wind, we believe that there's something that created a sound, so it could have certainly have been that, we believe. Um, this, even in places like Ezekiel chapter 37, this famous script, passage in scripture is called the Valley of Dry Bones, and God has given a prophecy and says, my spirit's gonna be like a wind awakening people, even awakening your dry bones and bringing life. 
And so there's this imagery that when the Spirit of God comes to bring new life, it's as if wakening this valley of dry bones. Then it says tongues of fire. Now, I often read this and I picture this because I'm kind of visual and have this vivid imagination. What would it look like to have these tongues coming down on you on fire and just to be one of the disciples like, oh, that's weird. Look at that. It's coming to lick me in the face. <laughs> I mean, what is going on here? Um, I, I, I don't know that these are literal or this is a vision they saw. This is how they described it. But what's described again, often fire in scripture um, represented the presence of God. And we find throughout the Old Testament, God's presence, especially at night, leading his people came in the form of fire. Uh, in the temple, they would light a candle. It represented the presence of God. So fire often represented the presence of God. We even find, uh, so throughout, we find that fire has that idea. Even when Moses was given the law on Mount Sinai, we hear mighty wind, thunder, lightning, and fire is representing this occurrence. So all of this is symbolic that God was present in this place. And then from there, we find them speaking different languages. And just a little church background. Some of you maybe are from a background of what we call Pentecostal churches. Maybe you've heard of Pentecostal churches. This is where they get the name. Pentecost literally means 50, but they get it from this moment that happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit gave this kind of supernatural empowerment to his people. Now, I believe that God is able, he hasn't changed, he's able to empower people in mighty ways. Um, I, uh, and, and I believe that there are times when God might empower people to heal others, he might empower people to speak different languages, but I don't think it's something we can create on our own and say, God, I'm going to learn how to do this. And, but I don't want to question the way God reveals himself in, uh, in, in the world, but we know in this case, we see that this is how he appeared in the very first time. Now, in the church history, there's debate on whether the Spirit of God still moves this way or not. That's not what the point of the morning is, okay? So I'm just going to give you that bone. I acknowledge that this is a, a debate in Christian circles. We're going to move on from there right now. But this is where they get that idea of Pentecostal from that day. Um, so, there's, but they start speaking different languages. And the people say, what does this mean? What does this mean? Now, before we even get into that, I want to show you something I think is incredibly cool here. At the beginning of, last week I showed you the original call for creation was that God told us to multiply and fill the earth with his image. That our call is to represent the character of God to the ends of the earth, to scatter and fill. But by Genesis chapter 11, humanity wanted to gather in fact, in Genesis chapter 11, I have the verse for you on the screen. In verse 4, this is a description of people. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. See, this is in contrast to what God said. Scatter and represent me. Make a name for me and fill the earth. Humanity, our tendency is, well, let's gather and make a name for ourselves. So this happens just 10 chapters after God said, fill the earth with my presence. We said, no, 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 let's stay here for our glory. And so the response that God gave to the people in Genesis chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, he says this, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And then the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. 
So Genesis chapter 11 kind of gives this picture of, of how the world starts scattering and these people now are scattered throughout the earth speaking different languages and a result that happens also that we don't recognize here is they begin worshiping other gods in all these scatter- lands where they're scattered. This is not the design God had for his people and his creation. But what happened is this is because we wanted to make a name for ourselves, we scatter and the consequence is now humanity is worshiping all these other gods that are not providing the life that our creator has for us. To this day, we all worship different gods from time to time. And we're not finding the life that is found in the creator God. And this is a picture of humanity. Now, we've got, now where we're at is creation is scattered speaking different languages, worshiping different gods. But the remnant of the Jewish population that's scattered is here in Jerusalem on this day. And now, verse 11 of Acts chapter two, we each hear the disciples declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked, what does this all mean? As I looked at that, I started thinking, what does it mean? Why did God use this moment? What is going on? Why are they hearing this in their language? And what we find here is that God is just and he is holy. We know that. We find that in Genesis 11. He says, I'm a holy God. I cannot stand for you rebelling against me. But what we also learn is God is gracious and kind. He will not give up on his creation. And he will provide a way for people to come back to him. And so what does this mean? I believe this, that God wants the whole world to experience the life that is found in Jesus. And in Acts chapter two, he uses this day of Pentecost when the world is gathered to reverse what happened in Genesis 11 because the cross and the resurrection reverses everything. It creates this new creation, a new life. And God's saying, what does it mean? I love my people even those who are worshiping other gods, and even those who have wandered from me, even those who rebelled against me. And I'm using this moment for people to hear the message, the good news of Jesus in their language, and what's gonna happen when they go home. They're gonna say, you will not believe what I heard when I was in Jerusalem. And you're not gonna believe how I heard it. In my own language, we heard someone declaring the good news of Jesus. When I had time, uh, the privilege of living in Israel and spending time with different uh, people, my family and I, we lived there, and, and one night we spent time with a, a Jewish man who was serving in the Israeli army in, in the 60s, and he happened to have one soldier in his, uh, in his division where they were studying the scriptures in Hebrew, in the original language, and they had someone who started saying, what does, who is this pointing to? And they came to the conclusion that everything they were reading in their own language was pointing them to Jesus. And they found the fulfillment of scriptures and now here's these people who are still living. One of them's a world-renowned scholar. The other one uh, is uh, high up as well. And they have been transformed by the love of Jesus and when they heard the good news in their language, it started to click and make sense. And they started to see through their scripture and they thought, oh wow, look, this is pointing to this Messiah that we've been hearing about. Something happens. God loves his creation and wants everybody, everybody to hear about Jesus because, we, because that is where life is found. 
So let's continue on with the story then. The story continues and it says this in verse 12. They continue, or they were all in amazement. Sorry, verse 13. Others were mocking and saying, oh, these guys are just drunk. Just full of sweet wine is what it says. In other words, yeah, this is kind of weird. They're speaking a different language, but I'll tell you what. I think they're just babbling drunks. They're just going on. And, and perhaps it's because they just heard a bunch of languages that made no sense to them. So they said, yeah, I don't know. This is kind of funny watching this. Now look at Peter's response in verse 14. Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. In other words, 9 a.m. He said, they're not drunk, it's 9 a.m. Are you kidding me? That's his argument there. And actually, in the Greco-Roman world, that made sense. Because no one drank before noon. (laughs) And he said, no, no, they're not drunk. But what's happening is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. And then he goes on and he not only starts looking at prophecies that were pointing to Jesus, but he goes through all the scriptures, the very thing Jesus did with them. And he showed how Moses and the prophets and the Psalms have all been pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, God's anointed one given to them. So what we have here is sermon then, or Peter then gives this great sermon about Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the one in whom we will find life. Jesus is the one who is, is coming to all the law that's been pointing to where we can represent God and, and find purpose and fulfillment. Jesus is that one. As we skip down, I'm going to spare you the whole sermon. I encourage you to read it on your own. He got down to verse 36, and he says, after telling the whole story about Jesus, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and the Christ. In other words, he's Lord over all. He's the anointed one who's been given to us. This Jesus whom you crucified is the one. He's the one. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of, the, of, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to look at that one phrase right there. I want to kind of change how we read that as well. Um, the Greek structure, we don't get into Greek very often, but today is one of those days, so here we go. The Greek structure really kind of makes that middle phrase a parenthesis. He has repent, so you could read it this way, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a parenthesis, it's a second thought, and then receive the Holy Spirit. So there's three separate thoughts there. There's been a lot of confusion throughout the course of history, history of Christianity of Is it baptized so that you are forgiven for your sins? But in this, really the structure of it is baptism is is not a condition on which we are forgiven for our sins. That's very inconsistent with all of Scripture. All of Scripture, what is consistent is it is our faith in Jesus that saves us, that that we get forgiveness because of Jesus, not because of what we do. The Greek structure here also says repent for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, trust Jesus for that. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
and receive the Holy Spirit. If you want to do Greek class afterwards, we could talk about why we think that, but that's kind of how it goes. So there's three things here I want to look at. The first one is this repent. The word here is a good way, a word that actually means to change your outlook. We're a little off on the slides there. This is repent. It's a new outlook. So we're looking at a new outlook here. This is a different way of seeing things. It literally means to change the way you view the world. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand, of course, but when you first became a Christian, did the way you saw the world change? How many of you became a Christian and the way you saw the world hasn't changed yet? But it's something maybe God's calling you to. I remember uh, there was a time when I was working at a church and um, this church was kind of going through some dysfunction. It was the only time it's ever happened in the history of churches, but I happened to work at that one. And, uh, but I remember there was a season there where, where there was, it just, everything was getting negative and almost every conversation we were having with people was negative. And th- when you'd start hearing about somebody and your heart kind of got excited because there's like gossip. And I don't know what it is with humanity, but that's something kind of like, oh, what? What did you hear? And, and I remember just, it's either that or complaining was just the spirit of that, uh, of the church for a season. And some of you, your workplace, you could say, that sounds like where I work, right? Where there's this negativity and complaining. And I remember the day when I took uh, my uh, junior high pastor out, we went out to coffee and I said, hey, this, this is just not the way it's supposed to be. And I'm not talking about all the other structures, But I said, you know, you and I, and we were both working in youth ministry at the time, said, it's just gotten too negative. We've been negative towards our church. This is not the outlook that Jesus saved us for. And and for me, it it, it just kind of felt good to be resting in that negativity and stuff. And I don't know, that's just the sin nature that loves that stuff. And we had this moment, and it was the season of Lent, and we said, you know what we're going to give up this year? Let's give up negativity. And we gave up negativity because we said, we need to, if we are changed by Jesus, why are we seeing the world this way? And, and it really was this formative moment where we just thought, it's as simple as saying, this is not the outlook of Christ. And when we repent, Peter's telling people, have a new way of looking at the world. Have a new way of looking at things. Do we believe that Jesus is the hope for every situation? Do we believe that Jesus is the answer to all the longings in our heart? Because if we believe that, then why do we long and chase after things that always come up short? And so we change our outlook and we start looking for life in Jesus. Here at this church, we believe that Jesus is the source of our life for today, tomorrow, and for eternity. That he is the answer to all of your past This is at our core. That's why we say we exist to help people discover life in Christ, period. We want you to discover life in Christ. And part of that is then we learn what it means to look like as followers of him, but it starts there. We believe Jesus is that answer. We believe Jesus is the answer for your marriage, for your parenting, for your workplace, for your neighbors, for how you interact everywhere you go. When we change our outlook, it changes things. So Peter starts and says, change your outlook, repent. The next thought was be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is, you have a new family now. So we have a new outlook and then you have a new family. In fact, if you look at Jesus, when he said, go and be 
make disciples, he said baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an idea where our teaching team talks about this, that we're baptized in the name of the Father. Now we're part of a new family. This doesn't mean our old families, our physical families don't count anymore. They certainly do. You're stuck with them. That's your family. (laughs) But you have a new family you're stuck with too. And it's your identity is now we are children of God, sons and daughters of God. How different is the world when we understand that our dad is in control of all things? He says, be baptized. You have a new family that you're a part of. The people that you interact with matter. That's why we want to be a church that's relational. We believe that relationships are kind of the key to our growth. Because we're, part, we're family together. There's times you're going to be there to pick each other up. There's times you need someone to pick you up. I know my wife and I, we've never lived near our physical family our entire marriage. And it has been such a joy to have church families who are part of our lives. Three kids, two of them were premature in the NICU. You can't do that alone. But we had a new family who walked with us through things. So we have a new family, a new identity that's in Christ. Finally, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. This for me is an idea of saying, you have a new mission. You see, the role of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is he's the sent one. He's the missional one. The Holy Spirit comes and brings a message of of the fullness of God to the world. He empowers, encourages, convicts our hearts. There's a mission that the Holy Spirit has, and that's to make the name of the Father known. And, And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Listen, you don't have to do this on your own. If our church is about making ourselves into better versions of us and working harder to be better, guess what? That is not hope for humanity. I'm sorry. A better version of me that uh, on my own efforts is not going to be good for anyone else. But a better version of me being transformed by the Holy Spirit as he chips away and the old me and brings life to the new me, now that's good news. That's good news in my marriage. It's good news in my parenting. It's good news for our staff Good news for the guys I play basketball with and being transformed by Jesus. (laughs) So when we, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Let's be people who surrender, who allow God to change us and transform us. Don't resist. How many of you look at your life and you say, yeah, I'm fundamentally, I'm basically the same my entire Christian life. Not much is different. I still have the same things I get angry about. I'm still impatient. I still don't care about others. But at least I have somewhere to go on Sundays. For you, maybe you need to receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, and and what I mean by that is just surrender to God. Say, Lord, I want you to transform and change me. Make a new me. Chip away the old. It's a process. And in this process, by the way, we always give you the warning and reminder don't rate yourself compared to others. Don't say, hey, when everyone else at Seacoast gets up to my level, then I'll start to surrender a little bit more, but I'm kind of already here. <laughs> the people I'm standing by are here. <laughs> no, be transformed. You let God work on the person next to you. You let God work on you. Now, we encourage, we challenge each other. We lean into each other's lives, but we don't judge where each other are at in the spiritual journey. That's God's business, not yours. There might be some people sitting around you every week who you say, I'm not so sure I'm comfortable with their lifestyle. You know what? That might be true, but I'm so grateful that they are here and Jesus Christ is working on their lives. 
And he can, he's at, at God's pace. I'm fine with that. It's not for me to be the judge because if I start doing that, God's going to say, Ryan, okay, do you want to talk about you and your stuff? We want to be a church that's a lot with surrendering the Holy Spirit and we have this new mission that's being changed by him and then therefore bringing this hope everywhere we go. Now, what happened as a result? What was the method? What did the disciples, how did they do this? Because I don't know about you, but this sounds tough to keep going in the journey. So I just want to give you a couple quick thoughts. Uh, Jump down to, uh, actually we'll just read the rest of it. The promise for you is for you and your children and for all who are far off. We're in verse 39. As many as the Lord God will call to himself, as many as God calls to himself, they can be changed. In verse 40, with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on encouraging them, saying, be saved from this generation. Verse 41, so then, those who received his word were baptized, and that day were added 3,000 souls. I love that picture. And they were continuing devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, the breaking bread, and prayer. I just want to give you a few thoughts right here. Notice what they were doing. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. These are three things that happen. We believe that there's things that help us grow. They were continuing devoting themselves to Scripture. The apostles' teaching were simply just saying, hey, here's what the scriptures taught. This is what Jesus told us, and and we don't need to know this stuff. Breaking of bread meant they they were together. That was a sign of fellowship. That was a sign of community. That was a sign that said, hey, they didn't become Christians and say, okay, great, I'm going to go live on my own. Now, there was an early church movement called the Hermit Movement. And there's literally caves in Jerusalem to this day where they could say like, you know, in, year, in the second century, there were hermits living in these caves. That kind of misses the point of filling the earth with the presence of God. You evangelize your cave, hopefully it happens pretty quickly. No, it's, Christianity was meant to be lived out in community. And part of that is because in community, people get a real picture of God. If you only see me, as your picture of Jesus, you're going to miss out on the fullness of who he is. But when you see the community together, you start saying like, oh, okay. Where Ryan's weak, maybe some others can shine the character of God. So they studied scripture. They were in community and they devoted themselves to prayer. I don't know about you, but prayer is so important and I am not a good prayer. It's just not something that's natural to me. I'm not the kind of person, my wife is great. If something, a situation pops up, she goes, we should pray. I'm like, that's a great idea. You must have some good preaching in your church to know that. Um, <laughs> but I don't naturally lend myself to that. It's just, I'm just not a good prayer. And then I think, wow, one of the three things that the early church did was they devoted themselves to prayer. In other words, God, we need to be in tune with you How foolish when we think we can do this without being in tune with God. Prayer opens our hearts and our eyes to what God is doing. So they devoted themselves to prayer. I want to encourage us as a church to consider these things. And we're not going to make it legalistic. I'm not going to say if you don't do these every day, then you're not a good Christian. But these, hey, this is in scripture. This is how this stuff was played out. And I think that the epigenosis of the early church, when the knowledge became on top of experience, they then said, wow, we're starting to live this stuff out. We better know about Jesus, so let's study scripture. 
wow, we're starting to live this stuff out, so we better do this together, because this is too hard to do it alone. Wow, we're starting to live this stuff out, so we need the power of God in us. We need to be devoted to prayer. It makes sense. If they were just sitting and talking about it and not doing anything, they wouldn't need this stuff. A buddy of mine says, he said this the other day to me, the early church didn't, or their level of obedience didn't outgrow their level, or sorry, their knowledge didn't outgrow their level of obedience. I know it was catchy. I was saying it the wrong way. Their knowledge did not outgrow their level of obedience. I think in the church in America, we have a history of letting our knowledge outgrow our obedience. We know everything about scripture. We know everything about God. We can describe all kinds of cool things. We even have these Greek words. But if our obedience, if our lives aren't out there living it out, it's just stuff up here. The early church didn't allow their knowledge to outgrow their level of obedience. They said, we got to live this stuff. And the more they lived it, they said, we got to know more. The more they played it out, they said, we have to have the power of spirit in us even more. We need to be transformed. This stuff is working, but we need God. If we can live our Christian lives apart from the power of God, we're probably not living our Christian lives. And I'm guilty of this often. It's amazing how much I can get done on my own when God's sitting there saying, Ryan, you ready to ask for some help? You ready to ask for what I need or want from you? Reading this just reminded me that I don't often go to what the early church did, but we're called to. I think our takeaway for today is when what does all this mean is what do we do with it? And there's a lot we can do with today. And I'm going to let the Spirit of God kind of work on you. And we're all at different places. But one of the things I think is we, Christianity is meant to be a movement of action. It's not just gather and worship. But it's a transform people that are transforming the world. A friend of mine who's a pastor up in Oceanside says this. I love what he said to me this week. He said, when our hands stay busy, our hearts stay soft. When we're all about ourselves and we just kind of, you know, live for ourselves, then our hearts can get hard. But when we're involved in serving, serving at the church, serving in the community, loving others, serving at your workplace, when our hands stay busy, our hearts stay soft because we see the need that's out there. And we, start saying, we stay soft and open to the Holy Spirit's power in us because we realize this is not, I can't do this alone. I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way up as we finish with this last song. And for me, I just really want to encourage us and challenge us as a church to not be a church that just learns and fills our heads with knowledge that doesn't have knowledge on top of something. Let us be a church that is knowledge that's lived out and played out every day. I want to invite you to be a part of the movement of God and what he's doing through Seacoast. Why we have our thing we call Love Encinitas, we believe that God wants us to love our city. If you live in another city, we believe God wants you to love your city and be a part of transforming that city. I wanna invite you to serve your city, your community, your workplace. And I wanna invite you to serve your church so that we can serve the city. We wanna be people who have this knowledge that's put into action. And that the Spirit of God is the one fueling us, empowering us, and leading us 
every step of the way. So let's pray as we end our time. God, we thank you so much for this morning and we thank you for, I thank you for the conviction and the reminder, Lord, that though I love to be busy and working for you, that sometimes I don't do it with your power. I do it on my own and it's so foolish. So God, I pray that you continue to shape me and give me a new outlook. Remind me of my new family, my new identity the new mission that comes through your spirit. And God, let us do it empowered and led by you. So Lord, now we end this time and we invite you to be the Lord of this place. We want our lives to declare that you are Lord and you are the giver of all. So we surrender to you now, Lord, in this place. And thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.